<laughs> and the fact that you come together and, and allow us to come out and enjoy this great part of the world and, and be with you and your hospitality. We were all very touched by your hospitality and the, the food and the friendship, and it, it means a lot to us. And thank you very much. Um, I know it sounds like the message is the fruits of sponsorship is you get to watch the people you love die. And... Uh, <laughs> So, yeah, it's better not watch them. And it's, and I think I I shared all that. I've I've been through that with these guys, and um, and I think it's about growing up inside for me in a way that I didn't think I was capable of. So I'm going to tell a little different story about the fruits of sponsorship for me. And for me, uh, I want to start off by saying when I got to the 11th step, my first time through the steps, when I was going in order. And I was reading the 11th step. I was at the point in my sobriety where I had done a fifth step and I had done a ninth step. Some of the work, not all of it. It took me seven years to pay back all the money, but I did it every month. And I did all that stuff. And I was starting to get to that place in myself where I could say to the newcomer, these steps are tools for living. And I meant it, you know, because people would say that to me when I was new. And I'd look at the steps and go, well, why are they in Chinese? man? (laughs) I got problems, you know, and I'd read these steps and they didn't apply to my issues. You know, but I was at the 11th step and it was hard for me. I didn't I it wasn't the praying and meditation that bothered me. It was prayed only for knowledge of God's will for me and the power to carry that out, because I was raised in a very strict Catholic upbringing. It wasn't like my parents were religious zealots. I just went to Catholic school. So all day long, I got that. And when I went through puberty in Catholic school, I had a lot of urges and feelings and thoughts that the nuns made it seem like if I were thinking that way, I was going to burn in hell and God didn't like me. So when it got to the 11th step and I was a grown man and it said prayed only for knowledge of God's will for me and the power to carry that out, I didn't like that because it seemed ambiguous, first of all. I didn't know what that meant, what is God's will for me, and I didn't think God liked me. Um, I believed that a power greater than me had gotten me sober and helped me stay sober, but this relationship and this communication really, really scared me. Uh, and I'm not kidding at all. I went to my sponsor and said, I don't understand that. What does that mean? How do I know God's will for me? And he was very kind about it. He didn't answer right away. He let me go on and think about it. And and I came back to him and I said, you know, I really, really do want to know what that means. And he said, you know, Matthew, I think maybe you're making this way too complicated. He said, maybe, you know, when the alarm clock goes off, God's saying, get up. You know, maybe when uh, Phoebe's diaper needs changing, God's saying, hey, it's time to change the baby. And maybe when a bill comes in the mail and it says, pay this amount, God's saying, hey, pay that amount. (laughs) Maybe if you just do the next indicated thing, you can be sure you're doing God's will. And it seems really simple all these years later saying that, but it actually changed the course of my life because <laughs> I relaxed about God and his will for me. And I just did what was in front of me. I got up in the morning and I went to work. You know, I got this great job at a, an airline. It was a great job for me. It was a big step up from the loading dock where I worked the first year of my sobriety. And I got this job kind of through AA, so I couldn't really talk about how I got the job with my fellow employees. I didn't drink. And I actually liked the job, so that made me unpopular at work. Because <laughs> they all thought it was hell, and, and uh, they all went drinking afterwards to talk about what hell it was, and I couldn't, I didn't go drinking. I went home where I went to a late meeting, and I was probably in my second year of sobriety. 
And on my way to work one day in the afternoon, I stopped and I bought a guitar. Beautiful guitar. Um, a Taylor Dan Curry model acoustic guitar. So some of the people in the room are jealous of me now. <laughs> and I've, I'm okay with that because I have self-esteem. But, uh, but, but I bought this guitar and I got to work and I didn't have anyone to show this guitar to because I wasn't the cool guy at work. I was not unpopular. I just didn't have a lot of friends. And that was okay, you know. I had been the cool guy at work and I always got fired from those jobs. So I went to my work and I put the guitar in my locker and on my way out that night at 10.30, I went to the employee bus stop because at Los Angeles International Airport, there's a D bus and all the employees from all the airlines come out and they wait for this bus and it takes us to a parking lot that's off the, off the grounds of the airport. So I'm waiting at the D bus with this brand new guitar case with this beautiful guitar in it. And I'm dying to show somebody my new guitar. I'm bursting to show somebody. And this poor, unsuspecting woman from British Airways comes and stands next to me. And I turn to her and I say, hey, can I show you my new guitar? And she looked right in my eyes and said, I'm sorry. I don't look at strange men's guitars. <laughs> and she got on the bus. And uh, I was quite surprised by this. And so I got on the bus, and unfortunately for her, it was a very crowded bus, and we were pushed against each other. We had a guitar case between us, but she was this close to me. And I realized that I had made her uncomfortable. And she had a book in her hand. I think it was Surprised by Joy by C.S. Lewis. It was one of C.S. Lewis's books. And I looked down and said, oh, I've read that book. And she said, well, cut to the chase. Do you believe in God? Now, look, I'm almost two years sober, and I almost spit on her when I yelled, God saved my life! <laughs> and all the blood drained out of her face. And, uh, and I thought, jeez, man, calm down. And she really looked like, I wish I could just disappear. I wish I could, you know, make this guy disappear. And uh, so I looked at her, and I realized, oh, bad pickup line number two at the airport. And I calmed down, and I said, what do you think? What do you believe? And she started talking. We talked about God, you know. And while we were talking, I noticed that she was really pretty. I had not noticed. I had not cared. I wanted someone to look at my guitar. It could have been Frankenstein if they would have just looked. And we talked, and I calmed down, and she calmed down. We had a really intimate little conversation. She did not believe in God. She was looking, searching, investigating. And she was really pretty. She looked like Audrey Hepburn. She had this long, thin neck and these blue eyes. And we're talking. We get off the bus, and I said, hey, you know, I've had such a nice time with this conversation, and um, why don't we forget about this guitar and have dinner sometime? And, you know, she did not think so. <laughs> she said, oh, right. Yeah, look at my guitar. I've read that. I should be able to wait for a bus. This is my Bam. It really, you know, surprised me. And I kept thinking, this is bad, but she's got such a cute little accent. And then she'd yell at me some more, and she stormed off. She walked off. You know, and I knew that I had grown spiritually because I went to work the next day and I didn't tell anybody she was a lesbian. <laughs> it's nobody's business, right? <laughs> I'm okay. She's okay. We're okay. I'm just kidding. But it is the fruits of sponsorship. Actually, I'm not kidding. But what I'm trying to, you know, because she re rejected me, but I liked me. I had been doing a lot of actions in AA and I liked my own company. So I didn't have to, like, say stuff about her. And I, I've got nothing against lesbians, by the way. I told this story at a meeting in the Pacific Palisades, and this woman comes up to me afterwards, and she says, Hello, Matthew, I'm a lesbian. And I said, That's great. And she said, You know how I know I'm a lesbian? I said, No, how do you know? And she goes, I'm not attracted to you. <laughs> and she walked away. 
<laughs> so I'm helping women discover their sexuality in Alcoholics Anonymous. Anyway, so my point was, and why I'm telling this in the fruits of sponsorship section of this workshop, is I was comfortable with me. I had followed a lot of direction. I was helping other people. My life was bigger than my little ego. Not much bigger, but a little bit bigger. And when I went to work the next day, I really thought about work. I didn't really think about it. Was I had made her uncomfortable. I had said the wrong thing. Innocently, but I'd said the wrong thing. So I worked all day, and I went back to that bus stop, and here she comes. And I'm like, uh-oh. Now I remembered I was rejected the night before. And I thought, I actually thought, hey, I don't have a guitar in my hand. Maybe she won't recognize me. <laughs> and she tapped me on the shoulder, and I turned to her, and she said, you know, I think I might have been rude to you. Would you like to miss this bus and have coffee? And we'll see how it goes. And it was almost, I don't know, was not long. Maybe three or four weeks later, she proposed to me. And we've been married now for 14 years. Come on, man. That's better. You know, a guy converts a lesbian, he should get a round of applause. And I tell this story because this is absolutely, my marriage is the gift. The gift to from God of my sobriety. I can't believe my luck. I cannot believe my luck. You know, when I told my sponsor before we got married, I said, you know, she's not blonde, she's not anorexic, she's not addicted to heroin, she's just really not my type. And he said, yeah, you've changed, you've grown. My wife was completely not my type. She's self-confident. She doesn't need me. Um, and I always needed you to need me or I didn't think you really loved me. I have never lied to my wife, and um, that may not seem remarkable to you, but if you ask any girl I've ever dated, is if I ever lied to them, I lied all the time because I was never enough for me. I was never enough of myself for someone like that to be attracted to me, and she was way out of my league. I still sometimes think she's going to wake up screaming and run out of the house. But for five years, we had the most lovely time, and I wanted to say... I did not get married where I, where I lived in, in California because my mother was, at this point, really not going to live much longer. And my wife said, hey, your mom's from Illinois. Why don't we get her home one more time? Why don't we get married in Crystal Lake where your family has a little lake house and everybody can come and your mom can go and be home before she passes away? That's what kind of woman my wife is. She's from Wales. It didn't matter to her. So we went to Crystal Lake, Illinois, and we were in this house on a lake. It's a little tiny house. It's been in my family. I think my uh, grandfather bought it in 1922. It's just a little house with a big lawn right on a lake. And I got to stand out on this lawn and wait. My wife was inside getting ready to come out and be my bride. And I walked out on this pier, and I looked up at this beautiful blue sky, and I said to myself, thank you, God, that this is the next indicated thing to do today. I'm going to marry this amazing person, you know. Because sometimes the next indicated thing isn't a dirty diaper. You know, sometimes the next indicated thing isn't an alarm clock. Sometimes the next indicated thing makes your heart blow up in your chest with joy, like Jay talked about and Bill talked about. And that is a gift. That's a gift from the fruits of sponsorship, from getting bigger than myself and my concerns so I could notice this person and getting bigger than myself and my concerns so I could live peacefully with somebody who didn't do what I wanted all the time. And we have had a wonderful life. We had five years of absolute bliss. We went to uh, we went to the hospital. I remember when my son was born, I actually took the pregnant woman to the right hospital. 
which as you know, if you were here yesterday, is a big step forward for me. <laughs> and we had that joy, you know, and Bill had came to the hospital when, when my kids were born. And, and we have had a couple of children and we traveled all over the place because we had flight benefits because we worked for airlines back then. And then about five years into our marriage, I came home and I found my wife on the floor. And she was really badly damaged. She had had a severe stroke. She lay on the floor and her face is contorted and she doesn't look good. And I could tell that she'd had a stroke. So I ran and I called an ambulance. And I came back to my wife and time just stood still. You know, I, uh, I don't even know where my kids went. I had little kids. I had a one-year-old kid and a five-year-old. And I walked out of the house and I got in the ambulance. I didn't even look back. They, somebody took care of my kids. I had to follow the love of my life. I got in this ambulance and I went to the hospital and they were so worried about her at this big metropolitan hospital. I live in a big city that they called a helicopter and they flew us to a university hospital to try to keep her from becoming more and more damaged right before their very eyes. So we flew to this other hospital. And that's when I realized, this is serious, man. I'm in a helicopter, you know. And we landed at this hospital and I'm trying to comfort my wife and she looks terrified. We go in and they're going to do this operation and they're going to try to make it okay. And they all are doing this operation and they walk away right in the middle. So clearly something happened and I thought she died. And I ran into the operating room and uh, the guy said, there's nothing I can do. This, this, course is, this stroke is going to run its course. I can't stop it. So I stayed with my wife and I got her into ICU. I'm sorry. Um, and it was like four o'clock in the morning, maybe. And I walked downstairs and I waited till it was an almost decent hour. And I woke up Bill and I called and said, uh, Philip had a stroke. I don't know what to do. And Bill said something funny. He said, you know, man, they say there are no big deals in AA. He goes, this is a big deal. And it was at like five in the morning, right? So I kept, I was, I wanted to know what do I do? What do I do? And he said, I want you to hang up and call Jay. I said, I don't want to do that. <laughs> I'm, you're my sponsor. I want to talk to you. And he goes, please, please hang up the phone and call Jay. So I hung up the phone and I called Jay and Jay woke up and he said, uh, he said something interesting too. I talked to him for a while. And, you know, I threw up on him all my, what had just happened in the last 12 hours. And he listened to me and he said, hey man, you've always wanted to be the world's greatest lover. Now's your chance. Here's your opportunity. And that really kind of changed the mood in me. And then he said, I want you to talk to my wife. I said, I don't want to talk to your wife. <laughs> I don't really want to talk to you. I want to talk to Bill. Is what I was thinking. But I said, Okay, put her on. And uh, Adele got on the phone and she said, Hey, Matthew, thank you for calling. It's 5 o'clock in the morning. She said, I've had six strokes. I think I can tell you how your wife is feeling. And I got experience. I got experience. And I went back in that room and I knew what to do. I was going to be the world's greatest lover for a while. And I knew that my wife was feeling because I had Adele to talk to and find out what was going on inside of Adele, inside of Philippa. Well, I had just gotten this job and it was in 10 days I was going to have to go 
to a Chicago from California to study for this job. And it was a four-week course that I had to do this training. And I, I talked to these guys and said, man, I don't think I can go. And Bill said, why can't you go? And I said, my wife's an ICU, Bill. And he said, well, I think you should go. He said, I think you should go. We can take care of your wife. And at this time, when I would come out of the ICU and walk into the lobby, Almost always, some of you guys were there. Some of the guys from the Hermosa Beach Men's Stag, or I also belonged to a group in West L.A., and they were just sitting there waiting for me. And it was a clear message that I was not going to be by myself, that I would not be alone. So I couldn't believe it, but I agreed to go to Chicago. And Bill gave me another piece of advice. He said, when you go there, don't tell this new company that just hired you and they're giving you this great salary and this great job don't tell them that your wife had a stroke and she's in the hospital. Don't be the new guy with problems. I thought, okay. I didn't know if I could do that, you know. But I didn't even think I was going to get on the plane to go to Chicago, to tell you the truth. My wife was an ICU and she is the love of my life. And I thought I might, if I left her, she would die. If I left the scene, she wouldn't make it. I slept in her room. I slept in a hotel room across the street, and I only got a room that I could see her room from my room. That was my insistence. It was awful. It was awful. I would fall asleep, and I'd wake up in the morning and think like everything was okay, and then I'd remember, no, your wife is paralyzed and brain damaged in the hospital across the street. So I went off to Chicago. I couldn't believe it. I went off to Chicago with these schmoes in charge of my wife. <laughs> And I was shocked by my negligence. But I went and I didn't tell anybody. I didn't tell anybody that my wife was in the hospital. I just went to class and I studied. We were in a big hotel with over a thousand people had been hired for this sales force and this pharmaceutical company. And I'm taking notes and because my life depends on it. I just, my wife just lost her job, right? And I'm writing and writing and then I'd run out on the breaks and I'd check my phone messages. And there'd be five messages, ten messages, sometimes fifteen messages every three hours from you guys, from these guys. Things like, hey, uh, I put up your Christmas lights today. I hope you don't mind. I put up your Christmas tree. I saw Philippa. She looks so good. She looks so good, man. You're so lucky. She's so beautiful. How could I drink? How could I? I would have had to push a thousand people out of my way, hundreds of people to walk to the sports bar where everybody else was going after class to the sports bar where they were going and sleeping with people that weren't their husbands and weren't their wives. And I was going up to my room praying my ass off that my wife would last long enough that I could get home and see her again. And these are the fruits of sponsorship. These are the fruits. I can't tell you how uncomfortable it was to hear they put my Christmas lights up. I'm supposed to go. I'm supposed to go to the panel. I'm supposed to pick up the new guy. And now all these new guys are putting my Christmas lights up. It really kind of creeped me out. I didn't, it was like the, somebody turned the funnel around and I went, shit, it doesn't flow this way. It didn't seem like this was part of recovery, but it was absolutely part of recovery. I just had to learn to accept that. So I want to tell you about a spiritual experience I had during this time. So I uh, found a way that I could go home one weekend. I think I had been gone for two weeks and I'd been getting all these voice messages and I was talking to my wife five and six times a day, seven times a day and talking to her at night. And all she would ever say is, get me out of this hospital. <laughs> and I'm in Chicago and the prognosis was not good. My wife had a very serious stroke. Her carotid artery tore against, against the inside wall of her carotid artery tore off. 
and collapsed. So she lost a big chunk of her brain tissue. The fact that she could talk was a major thing. And the fact that she was alive was a major thing. So getting her out of the hospital, I didn't really, wasn't concerned about that. I just wanted her to live. So I had two weeks into this, studying all the time and being a, a company guy and not letting on that my wife was sick. I, I worked away so I could go home for the weekend and be with my wife. And I flew in on Friday night, and it was late because I came from Chicago. I flew into, after class, I flew into uh, Santa Ana Airport, and I went took a cab to the hospital. And I couldn't wait to see my wife, who everybody said looked so good, you know. And I went into her room, and she didn't look good. She looked terrible. She looked much worse than I remembered and much worse than I'd made her in my mind. And I was really surprised. And I looked at her, and she looked up at me, and she wasn't the same. She had brain damage. She was injured. It was bad. I remember Jay, whose wife had six strokes, took one look at her and said, we got real problems here. This is problems. So he knew. So I assured her that everything was fine. I stroked her hair, and I crawled into bed with her, and I fell asleep with my arms around my wife around 11 o'clock at night. And I woke up at, I don't know, 4.30 in the morning, I remember it was before the sun came up, and I woke up with a start, and everything got really real all of a sudden, and my heart started pounding, and I was so afraid, because I thought, Christ, I got a one-year-old kid, I got a five-year-old kid, I've got Phoebe, who's seven or eight now, Phoebe was ten, and Philip is not ever going to be the same, she may never walk again, she's lost the use of her left side of her body, and she can't, her brain is damaged, and I got this new job that I'm clearly not cut out for. It's way over my head. I'm an English major. This is all science. And I was terrified. And I got up out of bed and I looked at her and she startled me. She looked crippled. And I went and I picked up the soap and the shampoo and all the stuff the nurses had left for me and I started walking towards that shower. And every time I'd take a step, I felt like I wasn't going to make it any farther. I felt so afraid. Because I thought, Christ, I can't do this. I can't do this. I'm not the man that needs that they need for this. I cannot support this family and this wife and do this job. And I walked and walked, and I, I was so afraid. I don't know if I can't describe how afraid I was. It was I, my I was felt like I was going to implode. I could taste metal in my mouth. I don't know if you've ever been that afraid, but that's what I remember from it. And I went into the shower, and this is. Leading up to the spiritual experience I had, I took off my clothes and I turned the shower on and I got down on my knees. And I prayed to God and I said to him, I said, God, you don't have to give me a lot of money. You don't have to heal my wife, but I need a little bit of power. Because I got nothing here. I'm not up to this. I can't do it. And I stood up and nothing had changed. I was filled with fear. I was a little cleaner. But no miracle, (laughs) okay? And I thought, Christ, I just took a noodle to a knife fight. This isn't going to work at all. And I put my clothes back on, and I walked back, and every step I thought, I'm going to have a nervous breakdown. And I thought, well, I'm in a hospital. Maybe an okay spot for a nervous breakdown. And I kept walking, and I kept thinking. I felt like I was physically going to fall over. And I walked back into a room, and I couldn't see her. It was still too dark, and there the, the, there was a big picture window behind her and I couldn't see her. So I sat down on the chair next door and I closed my eyes. And while I was sitting there with my eyes closed, I realized I could feel Philippa in the room with me. I could feel her in my heart, in my body. I could feel her. And I was so surprised. And I thought, I wonder if this is like the sixth sense of being really close to someone and really loving someone openly that I can feel her. And I thought to myself, if I walk through a 
big house, a big mansion somewhere, and I were blind, I bet you I could find the room she was in because I can feel her. And I stood up and I got next to her bed and I put my hands on the side of her bed and I looked out the window and it was just getting light. So you could see these these trees, a bunch of trees and these birds like were like flitting from tree to tree and it kind of startled me because I had been in such an orthopedic environment. And I looked out the window and saw this and I and I was awestruck. I thought, wow, the world is so beautiful. It's such a beautiful place. And I looked down at Philippa and she's very pale. She's from Wales. She's very pretty. And she had this... She has this pale skin, and she was kind of glowing. I mean, I looked down at her, and I was saw her finally. I could see her, and she just seemed like she was glowing. And I thought, oh, my God, she's so beautiful. And I love her so much. And there was no fear. No fear. Not any at all. I was completely at peace. And I realized I was surrounded by love and support. And I was lucky because I had a great love in my life. And all I had to do was the next indicated thing. And I was going to be fine. I didn't have to do it all at once. I just had to stand next to the hospital bed right then. And then the next thing, and then the next thing, and then the next thing. And that really is the fruits of sponsorship. You know, I got to share with you last night that I pushed a pregnant woman down a flight of stairs when she was eight and a half months pregnant, and I didn't even think about it. I dress my wife every morning. I dress her and I undress her every night. And I can't believe my luck. How does that happen to us? I don't know. Actions. You just do actions. That's what I know. And that's my story. Nobody died. (laughs) In my story. And the fruits of sponsorship. Thank you. those stories I've heard them hundreds and dozens of times and uh, and it's true and it's true There really isn't anything else to say, but of course I will. <laughs> um, you know, we got we got a few questions, and uh, and we'll do that. But I I want you to know that the uh, that the purpose of sponsoring is not top down. It is not me imparting wisdom. What I get to do is I get to share, where I am really helpful is I get to share my scar tissue. And my job with my friend Bill, I took a risk. And I honestly told him all the problems that I'd had in my first six years of sobriety. I told him. And I told him things about myself that I wish weren't true. And as we have gone along, I have told him the truth 
about what it's like to be on the path this much further down than you. And the purpose of that is not, you know, in the beginning it was, you know, hoping that he would not make the same mistakes. He's made the same mistakes. Some he's made even better than I have. But it was so that maybe he would not have to suffer as much and that ultimately what he would be is a better member of Alcoholics Anonymous than I am. And that maybe if we're really lucky, that when he works with others, that he would have the gift of my experience and his experience and be able to pass it on to another man who would end up being a better member of Alcoholics Anonymous than either I or he is. And that hopefully God will use Matthew and there will be other members of Alcoholics Anonymous that are better than we are. And that's what sponsorship is about. It's about us raising the consciousness of this movement that we're in. The Alcoholics Anonymous that I came into was a movement that was about not drinking. You put the plug in the jug and everything's fine. And that is true. But what's happened is, is this movement has been used to raise the spiritual consciousness and the awareness of an entire uh, 75 years now. We are growing in effectiveness and understanding. We are growing in numbers and power. And if you come to my home group, we have 16-year-old guys that stand up and identify as an alcoholic, and we believe them. We don't sit back and judge them. We believe them. And you know what happens? Those young men stand by the door and when a young guy comes in, they, they, when old guys come in, they grab them. They don't give a shit. Oh, new guy, got him. And they take them home and they open the book and they work with them. And when you see a 45 year old guy going like this with his 22 year old sponsor, it is heaven on earth. <laughs> There's a lot of people that say that Alcoholics Anonymous is not as effective as it used to be and all that stuff. That's not my experience at all. AA is as vibrant and is as effective as it has ever, ever been. And uh, But you need to pay attention to your experience. You need to look at what it is we're talking about. And as it says in our book, the only people that we're talking about are those who come and really try. Not those who come and just happen to get a court card signed or any of that kind of stuff. We're talking about those who try. And those who try, get. You knock, the door is open. It's no, it's no secret. It's no secret. So I've got a couple of questions that seem to me to be related, or I will interrelate them. So I'll work with these, and then you can play with whatever you want to play with. What are your thoughts regarding relationships in early sobriety? I have scar tissue. Um, what are your thoughts? This seems to be in the same handwriting. 
What are your thoughts on same-sex sponsorship? Does it matter if both parties have long-term sobriety and are and significant age difference? Bill's very interested in that one. And do you need a face-to-face sponsor or will a telephone sponsor suffice? Um, well, let's see. When... Uh, uh, when we say uh, don't get in a relationship in your first year, what we're trying to do is we're trying to save just a little bit of blood. We're not trying to eliminate the amount of fun you're going to have. We're not saying don't have fun. What we're trying to say is please don't get contractually involved and please use a condom. Please. It's very important. Because um, otherwise there'll just be a lot more stuff. Now, with me, I was tending bar. I had maybe uh, eight, ten weeks sober, and this woman came in, and I served her, and she wanted what I had, and you know, and later on, she wanted even more what I had, and she said that she wanted to come to AA, so I took her to Alcoholics Anonymous, and and you know, took her around to all the meetings, and I wasn't taking advantage of a newcomer because I was a newcomer, and besides, we'd been involved before she came to AA, so I wasn't, I wasn't hitting on any new person. And I introduced her to all the all the old timers, you know, and taught her to sit down in the brain damage section and and all that stuff. And after, you know, she really started to sober up maybe three, four months, she left me for another woman. And then brought her to the meetings and sat her down, you know, and so I learned out in LA we do things where we drive by the parking lot to see whether or not we can go in the meeting, to see whether there are cars there or not. So anyway, just one of my little uh, things and and what we're saying is is that the people that you'll be involved with that you get involved with in your first year of sobriety are not going to be the kinds of people that you will be involved with in your second third or fourth year of sobriety it's just a function of physics about what it is that we're able to do and uh, and um, you know, so that's that's my experience about that, and that's what I share with the guys. I'm not saying don't have fun. You can have fun. You can have a lot of fun. But make sure that you both agree that this is what the parameters of fun are. And don't go... Uh, my wife has a very nice way of putting it. She said, don't you dare go dating a woman who's got less than six months sobriety. She said, if you need a date that bad... Go into the hospital and pull her out of the room, have sex with her, and put her back in there. That's the, what, it, what it is you're doing. So just a, a little little thing. And I think she says a year, actually. But <laughs> um, So, um, and the women take care of the women. And... Uh, So there's that part. Uh, the other part about uh, about different sex sponsorship, you know, in other words, do I sponsor women? Frank Bookman, the guy who started the Oxford Group, the first person that joined as a uh, as a team member was a woman, because he said men's work is with men and women's work is with women. Uh, and I go along with that. Do I know guys who sponsor women? Yes. Some of them are older, paternal, seem to be able to do it and get away with it. 
not get away with it, seemed to be able to do it. But the people that they work with, the men that they work with, that then emulate their sponsors, seem to have difficulty with it. And I've seen um, a lot of difficulty with that. So there are, are there exceptions to every rule? Of course. But as a rule of thumb, you know, I mean, guys, we're just about that deep. I mean, that's it. We're about that deep. And, and, uh, and it just, you know, and the other thing is, is that my wife would be deeply offended if I ever did that. And she's said as such. So I'm a real big fan of men's work for men and women's work for women. And, um, again, there are some people who may be able to do it, but I, it just as a rule of thumb, in 30 years, I've seen a lot more damage done by people that weren't spiritually equipped for it to do it than, than I've seen good happen. But that's, that's, and the final thing is about uh, non-face-to-face sponsor. I had an opinion. My opinion was you need to be face-to-face with your sponsor. And then I was at a conference speaking, and there was a woman who got up, and she talked about how she was living in rural Georgia, some kind of Atlanta thing again. And uh, and she... Uh, She'd been uh, around Alcoholics Anonymous for a while, and she was she was despondent and was going to kill herself. And she listened to a tape and heard this woman talk, and she called the woman up and asked her if she'd help her, and the woman said yes. And that they got together once a week, and they worked the steps on the telephone. And uh, so I had an opinion, and then I heard somebody that had real experience. And then a while later, I was up in a rural area in Washington on an island where they had a tradition of having sponsors off-island. A guy asked me. I said yes. And we started doing this thing on the phone once a week going through the book, a guy who had time. I'm not talking about somebody that's coming off a drunk. And uh, and it worked out very well. It worked out very well, and I started saying yes. And so I sponsor people in other areas. And now the technology is such that, you know, I mean, I get calls from New Zealand. I get calls from, from Iceland. I get calls from... Uh, from the Netherlands, I get calls from, from, I mean, my wife sponsors people in Belgium. I mean, we've got folks all over and we're using Skype and we're using all the different things that are available to us and it, and, and it's fine. Now, all the people that, most of the people we're working with are folks that have been sober a while, who've been through the thing, who want, you know, what we've got, which is long-term sobriety. My wife, the woman that she's working with in Belgium is, uh, was a brand new person in in uh, in uh, OA, and uh, and sh- this woman's gotten abstinent, and it's just it's just an amazing thing. We, Bill and I, and we've we've been on a lot of adventures together, and we had the privilege of talking in Veldhoven in the Netherlands, and and we got to we got to speak, and our wives did a did a, a workshop for women, something that there hadn't been, and. Uh, and about sponsoring women specifically and all this stuff. And a gal walked up to my wife and got her number and said, you know, I'd, I'd like to talk to you. And Sarah called Adele and uh, said, will you help me? And and, uh, and she started working with Sarah. Sarah had been abstinent for a while. And, and, uh, and they talked every week on the telephone. This last year, we went back. Del and I went and led a retreat back there. 
And Sarah was waiting at the airport. These gals with their food issues, my wife was afraid. And there was this woman that she sponsored standing there with a a big basket full of fruit and vegetables, fresh stuff for her. And it was the first time that they'd actually seen each other. The first time that they'd actually been in each other's physical presence in three years, and yet they were closer than, or two years, and yet they were, they were closer than people that, that, that we work with that are in our homes. So you have no idea how amazing that we can, that we can be used. But the way we're being used is just by saying yes and just doing the same kitchen table stuff reading the book, going through the stuff, all that thing. And the thing is the technology is there that allows us to be close and to love people. And, uh, you know, uh, Maria and Baldwin are in our home. They live inside of us. And to have that, when we talk about this thing, I mean, Denton here, and he sends me stupid little emails and stuff, but I know how much he loves me. So we have a way of being connected. This thing that Bill does, this ministry that he has, that he passes all, you know, that goes around and around this planet. And uh, it's an amazing, amazing privilege. So uh, just a few questions and answers. Um, men working with men, women working with women. Um, my wife is 19 years sober, and she sponsors a lot of women. And uh, I sponsor a lot of guys who try to keep them separated, but it's difficult. You know? And all the young kids, you got to feed them, too. They never have any money or anything. You know? That's another thing about the sponsor's wife. If you come over to my house, if you're really nice, she'll feed you. You know, there's guys, there's kids that'll come over there and they can go through two meals in one day, and they stay long enough. You know, um, what she tells me about when a woman comes and asks me to sponsor her, what's the motivation? I think it's because they all want to sleep with me, but I've realized that's not true. You know, she tells me it is, but I just know I, I don't think so. You know, I'm beginning to believe that I'm some kind of a grandfather figure or something. It's kind of pathetic. <clears throat> but you'll hear certain things. They'll say, I don't know any women that really work the steps. The women's program is different than the men's. It's lighter. I need somebody that I can really work the steps with. That's one thing that you'll hear. Well, I know a lot of women that work the steps, so I can give you those numbers, and that that precludes that argument. I can find you a woman that will actually sit and read the book with you. My wife is one of those women. She won't sit there and just try to get in touch with your feelings with you. She'll actually guide you through the process. The other thing that you don't hear, but it is a motivation, is that the women don't identify with other women. They don't like other women. Uh, many men 
that don't want to go to men's meeting is because they're insecure around other men. They do better in mixed meetings and stuff like that. I mean, part of the process of maturing is learning how to interact with your own gender in a positive way where you feel comfortable with that. That's true for all of us, okay? But there seems to be an especial, a special problem with women interacting with other women. Part of the way that many women survive out in the street, in the alcoholic world, in the world in general, is they will attach themselves to a man that will then get them through. And that's their drive. That's their motivation. That's how they operate. If I let you do that in Alcoholics Anonymous, I am doing you a disservice. And my wife tells me, do not be afraid to say that. That is the absolute truth about my gender. Everyone? No. A lot? Yes. And I believe her when she tells me that. Uh, I believe other women have told me the same thing. I have called women about this and asked them, women that I respect, what do you think I should do? You know, and I've heard this same thing. So the last thing I want to do is help you hide from yourself. That's not my job in Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, I used to just reject them and say, no, I don't do that, or make some quip or some joke. And I learned after a while, growing up a little bit, to tell them, "You can. here's my card, call me anytime, I'm there for you. I'd be happy to talk to you, spend time with you. And, you know, I don't sponsor women, but I can help you find somebody, and I'm there for you. I'll talk to you. I can be, I'll be in your life. I'll be your friend, you know. And uh, they never call, <laughs> ever, <laughs> ever, you know. Uh, most of the men never call either. You know, you go give the great talk and they go, oh, God, man, I need your help. And by the time they get home, the glow of that pitch has somehow dissipated into the ether somewhere, you know. They never call. That's why people are always saying, well, I don't want to give out my card all the people will call. No, they don't call, you know. If you keep doing it after a while, one will, then another one, then pretty soon the phone rings all the time. But don't worry about the 50 of them that ask you after the big pitch, you know. They never call you, you know. You know, maybe three years later or something. So I think the men work with men, women working with women, there's more than just the obvious problem of the male-female thing, because that is a very real problem. Another thing, too, just in closing about that, I have really no desire to hear a woman's fifth step. I really don't know what I would do with that. You know, I'm serious. I mean, it, I mean, we all joke and Twitter about it. You know, I mean, yeah, you know, but. I don't know. I, you know, wouldn't it be hard for you as a woman to tell me some of the stuff that has happened with you? You know, it would be difficult. It would be difficult for me to tell mine to a woman and be really openly honest about my feelings about, you know, maybe my hatred of women. You know, would it be hard for you as a woman to sit and tell me about how you hate men but you can't get it? I mean, it would be difficult. I mean, there's something, there's a sense of identification there that I think only another woman could give a woman or only a man can give a man. I think that's very real and it shouldn't be discounted and just blown off. Plus, I don't think men and women make good friends. <sighs> I could extrapolate on that. No, no, no. Um, third tradition, what is AA membership? I think that's a really good question. Um, the third tradition says that the only requirement for membership is a desire to stop drinking. It used to say honest desire. 
In the long form of the third tradition, it doesn't even really say that. It has other qualifications. So there's an interesting debate about the short form and the long form. It's kind of interesting. Uh, My feeling about that is, kind of what I think and what I feel about it is, I was raised in kind of an AA tradition of you can't be a member of AA until you've done your fifth step. Uh, I don't think that shows up anywhere in the AA literature. <laughs> but uh, there's kind of an ethic in our area, in our home group, of that. That you come into AA and anybody can come. I mean, AA is one of the most poorly run organizations that you'll ever run into. I mean, right up front, we let everybody in, which really screws up the whole thing. Because some people should definitely be weeded out. you know. And uh, you'll hear a lot of people talk from the podium about that. There's a lot of people that seem to have this big problem with people in AA that aren't alcoholics. They talk about it and talk about it like it's a real issue. My feeling about that always was, if there's somebody in AA that isn't an alcoholic, they'll weed themselves out. I I don't think they need me to kind of help filter the process, you know? I mean, they clearly have some kind of neurotic problem if they're here and they're not alcoholic, and I'm sure they'll figure that out. Or they'll start their own meetings. We've all been to those, haven't we? The ones where there's no alcoholics in there. You know, I've been to a couple of those. They go, what are they talking about? You know? Well, I think when you really, the real actual experience of being in AA is you come to AA and you sit down and you're in the meeting. The first thing that happens if you're going to stick around for even a little while is you get intrigued. You get the jokes. You know, those of us that sit up and speak in AA meetings, there's a real interesting phenomenon. In every group, I have some really funny stuff that I say. It's kind of universally funny. I mean, you can say it and you just know you're going to get a laugh. It's that AA humor, that identification. And you'll see seven-eighths of the room just roaring. And then you can pick out the faces of the people that are just sitting there, just implacable. There's nothing And you wonder, who is that guy? What is going on in there? I mean, if he's not laughing at the jokes, why is he here? Or what's going on in his life? Isn't it interesting? There's some people that get it. There's some people just get the humor. They get the joke. And they're all inside jokes. They don't laugh at any of this stuff down at the Rotary Club. This is not Bob Hope kind of humor. I mean, this is AA funny stuff. It only works in AA. Believe me, I've tried it in other places. You know, it doesn't work anywhere else. They look at you like, what? You know. So the first thing is, is you get, you get hooked by the stories. Then you ask for help. And when you do your fifth step, everything changes. Everything changes when you do the fifth step. Now you're sitting in the room and you're looking at other guys and you're saying, I've done my fifth step, have you? Because now you're in. Now you're in. So there's kind of an inside membership pathway, I think. Uh, Jay raised me to be what he called, what he termed, a member in good standing of Alcoholics Anonymous. What is a member in good standing? One who works the steps. One who has commitments in meetings, participates in the community, cleans up, empties the ashtrays, 
maybe has a job in the meeting, cleanup chairman, literature guy, somebody who participates and helps the process go along. Time goes by, somebody who's sponsoring people. That, to me, is a membership member in good standing of Alcoholics Anonymous. And it kind of transcends the third tradition thing of the only requirement for membership is a desire to stop drinking. So there's your requirement. What makes a member? Those things, I think, is what makes a member of AA, somebody who actually participates in the process. Um, and just quickly, there's one question here. What is Gresham's Law? Um, <laughs> Gresham's Law is an economic theory that says that good money will follow bad money if they're valued at the same level. And it, as applied to Alcoholics Anonymous, um, Tom Powers, his son, the guy who edited the, uh, the 12 and 12, in the 70s he wrote a thing applying that to Alcoholics Anonymous where he describes weak, medium, and strong AA. The idea being that in Alcoholics Anonymous, the message has been diluted to such a level that the good program is being pushed out by a very weak program. Um, weak program to me is when you walk into a meeting or you're in a group of people that are essentially sharing about how their day went, and you're not hearing too much about working the steps and being involved in the process at a level that even beyond the meeting that is not going on also. It isn't just the meeting. It's just that people can get by on going to one, two meetings a week, uh, not really having any commitments or involvement in Alcoholics Anonymous, and they're staying sober for long periods of time. And there's people that are following that and falling victim to the belief that if I'm going to meetings, I'm doing AA. And you can see what the weak, medium, and strong is. The strong being obviously what you've kind of witnessed up here and what we're talking about. And I know with you guys, it's like preaching to the choir. You know, if you weren't interested in this stuff, you wouldn't be here. You know, if you're not sponsoring people and really being involved and believe in the process of the steps. And <clears throat> you can always tell the guys that believe in the process of the steps because they sit and argue with each other about the correct way to do it, you know. <laughs> Because we believe in it, and we feel strongly about that. And I don't think that there's anything wrong with that. I think the discussion and debate of that is always really positive. Because the bottom line is, is that we're doing it, right? And you get some guy that's got two or three years sober, and he's lit up. That guy is the best sponsor in Alcoholics Anonymous. Because he knows absolutely everything, and he's more than willing to tell everybody about it. You know, and he's available. You know, I mean, he can't stay home because there's people dying in the streets. If he stays home, they'll just die. You know, because there's nobody else backing him up. Everybody else is a lightweight, goddammit, you know. That's the strong program of Alcoholics Anonymous. The medium one is the guy with 10 years sober that used to do some of that stuff, and he's backed off now. And he's letting the younger guys take the heavy load as he enjoys the fruits of sobriety. You know, and he's going to a couple of meetings a week. He may have a commitment here and there, but it's been a long time since he's done an inventory and he's coasting, right? He's coasting. All of us have been there. All of us. Anybody that's got 20 plus years has coasted for a while and let other people carry the load, man. You know, I don't deliver. I have actually said, I don't deliver anymore. You got to come and get it. That's called arrogance. So, I've actually said that. You know, not too long ago, actually. 
So now there's an 18-year-old kid in a recovery house, and I have to drive over to the little bastard's place and read the book with him, you know? Because if I don't, he'll tell everybody that I'm not doing it. The WEEK program is essentially no program. The WEEK program is somebody who has skipped over the hard parts, done a life story kind of inventory, made some amends to mom and dad, and he's just coasting along and he's perfectly fine. It seems as though inside, is he troubled? Is he suffering? I think in some cases. But I think if you go back to the thing about who's really alcoholic and who's not, you can kind of see some of that. You know, maybe his life is perfect. I really, to be honest, really quite frank with you, I do not judge those people anymore. If it's working for them, God bless them. Because I'm having a hell of a lot more fun than I think they are. And they don't even know that they're missing out on anything. You know, I mean, it's not like, it's not a matter of me comparing myself to them. It's that this is what works for me. This is the way I want to live. This is by choice. It's not out of a sense of duty. I enjoy this. I have fun with you. This is not a burden to me. My wife and I live in a place, it's really hard to describe. I mean, when he talks about how much he loves his wife, I cry because all I can see is my wife's hands and the way they touch me. I love her. It's frightening sometimes. It scares me that I love her so much. What if something were to happen? And that's my egoic mind trying to add fear into this wonderful love and passion that I have for this woman. And it leaks out from around her to the other guys that I sponsor, my love for my sponsor, my love for Matthew. It's just undying. And I've re after a while, I can't hide it anymore. There's nothing to defend. I don't have anything to protect because there's nothing that I have that I wouldn't give you, honestly, in an emotional sense. You know, I mean, what a wonderful way to live. I think that's a good membership in AA. We're almost done. I got one more question. Okay. You give it to me when you're done. All right. I don't. I'm not in charge. Clearly. Um, <laughs> I work with my brother who is also an alcoholic. Shall I find another job when I get out of treatment? It's not as general a question as some of those questions, but I wanted to answer because I have experience with this. Yeah, just a yeah. <laughs> the, uh, my experience is that after I married Philippa, uh, my brother at my wedding invited me to come be in business with him. Uh, my brother who 12-stepped me. My brother who was years sober and he had a big house and a business and a family. He wanted me to be a sales manager. And I came to his business, and um, he gave me a lot of room to learn how to do that because I'd never been a sales manager before. So I did all that. This is before her stroke and before I got off into pharmaceuticals. This is in the early years of our marriage. And I started running out and doing sales calls really badly. And uh, then I got better at it, and then I got better at it, and, and we had quite a business going. Um, and then her parents died. They, one at a time, they passed away, and my brother changed sponsors after 20 years of sobriety out of the blue for no good reason that I could think of. And then my brother started not coming to work in the morning. And he was the boss, so I couldn't really say anything, but I had the next office, and everybody who was walking into his office was now walking into my office. So I was taking care of the business. And then he started coming to work at like 2 in the morning. And I get notes and post-it notes. And I'm calling him and going, hey, this seems really odd, you know, and he'd say, maybe he's getting loaded. And I couldn't believe that. I couldn't believe that. 
he was my example of AA. You know, when my brother got sober after living in his car, he went to AA on Thanksgiving Day. He stood up from the date table and said, I got to go to a meeting. He went to AA at Christmas. He showed me AA. I couldn't believe it. And then finally I said, hey, are you drinking? And he laughed in that condescending, I've been your older brother all your life, don't you dare question me laugh. <laughs> and he convinced me he wasn't drinking. And I was going, carrying this business and going on these sales calls and keeping our partners in, in London happy and running around and things weren't holding together super well. And he was unreachable and I'd call him and go, hey man, this weird thing's happening. And he said, quit your job. And then I'd go, thanks a lot, Bill, and hang up and go get my, you know, I had a family and I did all this stuff and my brother disintegrated before my very eyes and he was drinking. And um, I'd call Bill and go, you know what he did today? And he'd say, I don't want to know what he did today. Quit your job. And that was very unsatisfying. And uh, finally, I quit my job. And I stood out in front of medical buildings and held out, handed out my resume and I got a job in the pharmaceutical business and then you know what happened after that. Now, that's not to say that this person who wrote this question, who's in treatment right now, works with their brother who's an alcoholic, if the alcoholism is affecting the business or affecting your ability to do the business, you may want to look for another job while you have a job. If, however, your brother's a functioning alcoholic, you just know he comes to work every day, he does his eight hours, and then he drinks all night and passes out, and he's a terrible father, and he's a terrible husband, and he's unreliable outside of work, and you as a newcomer think you don't want to be around that, you may want to reconsider that. Because one of the reasons I got sober as strongly as I did because my brother was an example of Alcoholics Anonymous to me. So there's not a good answer that covers all of these situations. If you want to talk to me after the meeting, I'd love to talk to you. I've wrote this question. But do you see? If it's affecting you and it's affecting your ability to do the job, that's one thing. If you could be an example of AA, not a zealot, not a 12-stepper, I think you may want to stay. That's my opinion. What's next, Jay? Well, I think uh, we got I stand by the door. I neither go too far in nor stay too far out. The door is the most important door in the world. It is the door through which men walk when they find God. There is no use my going way inside and staying there when so many are still outside and they as much as I crave to know where the door is. And all that so many ever find is only the wall where the door ought to be. They creep along the wall like blind men with outstretched groping hands, feeling for a door, knowing there must be a door, yet they never find it. So I stand by the door. The most tremendous thing in the world is for men to find that door, the door to God. The most important thing that any man can do is to take hold of one of those blind groping hands and put it on the latch, the latch that only clicks and opens to the man's own touch. Men die outside the door as starving beggars die on cold nights in cruel cities in the dead of winter, die for want of what is within their grasp. They live on the other side of it, live because they've not found it. Nothing else matters 
compared to helping them find it and open it and walk in and find him. So I stand by the door. I admire the people that go way in, but I wish they would not forget how it was before they got in. Then they would be able to help the people who have not yet even found the door. Or the people who want to run away again from God. You can go in too deeply and stay in too long and forget the people outside the door. As for me, I shall take my old accustomed place, near enough to God to hear him and know he is there, but not so far from men as to not hear them and remember that they are there too. Where? Outside the door. Thousands of them. Millions of them. But more important for me, one of them, two of them, ten of them, whose hands I am intended to put on the latch, so I shall stand by the door and wait for those who, who seek it. I had rather be a doorkeeper, so I stand by the door.